This is Thomas DePolo. This is Max. This is Kevin Ham. Hey, this is Jake Cook. Hi, this is William Roy. You're listening to The Green Box. So, Melon, you were playing the Warhammer Fantasy RPG not too long ago, is that right? Uh, fourth edition of that game, yes. Uh, what was your impression of that? I, I really enjoyed playing it. I think that it is kind of fun to um, just roll a random character and see how you can kind of bumble through the adventures. I think that the trouble with games that have super intricate progression systems is that it's very difficult to tell when something is broken and shitty and when it actually makes sense, but you just don't see it because it only takes effect like five levels later. So I was really having trouble deciding whether stuff I was encountering was good, bad, or whether I just didn't understand it because it had references to stuff later in the game. Uh, I felt the skill system was much too thinly sliced. I think the game has something I would call a maximalist philosophy, which is that more is always better, which I very adamantly disagree with my personal philosophy about how games should be designed. Now, the fourth edition is still percentile-based, right? Yeah, they went away from percentiles for third, but they came back for fourth. So there's lots of thinly sliced skills, lots of rolling, lots of percentiles. What is your What are your thoughts about how often you roll and how often those rolls succeed? Um, you're very unlikely to succeed on most die rolls, which is why uh, the boss needs to do one of two things. Either needs to not make stuff depend on rolls, need to make that stuff extraneous. You know, like it, it's, you know, supererogatory gives you a nice bonus, but it's not required to keep the story moving forward. Or um, you can have lots of roles, but be very, very aggressive about moving the plot along, even when people fail gratuitously. This is something I was actually thinking about when I was listening to an episode of RPPR, is that at first I was kind of annoyed with how often the GM was demanding that the players roll for things, but then I realized that rather than stop then sending the game grinding to a halt every time that they failed, he was coming up with new ways to add complications, but still let them do whatever they wanted to do, just with more friction. So those are the two things that you needed to, to think about when you run a game like this. And when you run any percentile system, you have to think, um, if I make the players roll all the time and punish them harshly for failure, it will incentivize them to buy every skill up to 60 or higher, because otherwise they will realize very quickly that there's no other way to succeed. And in Delta Green, that does come up occasionally with certain skills that you always have to roll. There are some skills that give you, that give you stuff uh, when you have them at certain breakpoints, like there'll be a clue that says if you have 40, 50 search, you get it. Or if you have enough human, you can learn this about the suspect. But there's there's skills like first aid or firearms or whatever that you pretty much always have to roll the dice when you use them by rules is written. So those are the ones that you can count on the players either buying up or finding otherwise to stack modifiers on. Psychotherapy is another one because how often on a Delta Green mission are you going to have the kind of stable therapy session with someone where it doesn't require a roll? Absolutely true. The basic strength of a percentile system is that it's very easy to read the probability of an action succeeding, although it's, that's also true with D20. But uh, the weakness of a percentile system is that if you make the players roll for everything, they will either fail constantly or they will min-max their characters so that they can actually succeed. So you either need to not make them roll for everything and just kind of recognize when 50% or 40% is enough, or you need to have ways to keep the game moving and make failing roles interesting rather than just blocking off the avenue of approach they picked. I'm glad you compared it to a D20 system because a percentile system has one additional layer that a D20, you know, beat the DC 
mechanic lacks, which is that there is an upper limit of what your the the highest skill you can get is. You can pump your skill to ninety nine. It's as high as it could ever go. So all other things being equal, why would you ever not want to do that? Whereas in a system um, like a d twenty where you're rolling a die and adding a bonus to it, I mean, there's probably an upper limit. You got to kind of figure out what it is after a certain point. You know, not having that obvious uh, end goal in sight, you kind of go, well, this is probably good enough for now. Know what I mean? I kind of, I kind of wonder if having a hard cap that is so easily visible in some way incentivizes one to to aim for it. I don't think it's even that. I think it's that players know if I got to roll this and I got forty percent, I'm bone sixty percent of the time. I think that it's not even that they're trying to reach a hundred; it's that they're trying to reach any reasonable chance of success. Because even 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 if you have like a GM you trust, there's always that feeling of I need this because if I let the team down by fucking up rolling. Because here's the thing: everyone says you all you don't have to roll unless it really matters. You don't have to roll unless it's a stressful situation. As a player, that's not comforting. As a player, that's saying, oh, you don't. You know, it's not that you have a forty percent chance of success; it's that you have forty percent chance of success when it actually matters. It's, it's even worse. Tom, you and I played a little bit of Dark Heresy uh, now and again, don't we? Yeah, we play it once in a while. I don't know if you caught onto this, but the last time we played, I sort of realized that the reason that I wasn't hitting anything in combat was because I wasn't stacking all these plus 10, plus 20 modifiers from everything. And then I started doing that, and all of a sudden, things were working, and it was, it was, it was going great. Will, remember when we used to play Eclipse Phase together? I was just going to say that. And I remember when that exact same thing happened. Yes, exactly. the exact same thing happened. I, I, we realized, oh, we can just stack a whole bunch of modifiers, and uh, all of a sudden, the only constraint now is time. Um, so I'm wondering if uh, maybe there's maybe maybe I'm overlooking something when I play Delta Green. If maybe there is maybe there is some way to to more easily get pluses here and there. So one to make one thing that's th- kind of broken about Delta Green is that um, it is extremely easy to get bonuses to firearms rolls. So. In Delta Green, yes, if is. I if you I, I wrote so I wrote you guys might recall and we can put it in the show notes if we want. Uh, I wrote a document called "Shooting for Survival in Delta Green," which is just I'd actually like to make that a whole segment at some point. Here's here's how to min like min max, or not even min max, but like if you've got a character that has you know twenty percent firearms isn't built for combat, here's how you make your character survive. And basically, it's the survival guide for if you don't trust your other players. That's sort of true, yes. Um, well, it's 100% true. And basically the way you do it is, in Delta Green, you can get an attachment on your weapon, either a holographic sight or a laser, a laser, which we're pretty sure don't stack because they are used in different circumstances, either when you're sighting down the gun or when you're not. That's, so that's one, you get one bonus from putting an optical attachment or laser sight on your weapon. You get another bonus if you use a shotgun, because with, when you use a shotgun, um, I believe that it's never explicitly stated, but the way that that bonus works is that if you use buckshot, the point blank bonus applies at all ranges because in the descriptive text for some of the NPCs in some of the scenarios, it says that the bonus for point blank, that, that the uh, the buckshot bonus extends to all ranges except for point blank. But that was going to be my third, my third clause is that when you are at extreme close ranges with a weapon that's not a shotgun, you also get a plus 20. The modifier cap is plus 40, so that means that your base firearms are 20 becomes 60 once you hit the modifier cap. It seems and, pretty good. And so the thing is, is that firearms get the bonus for doing all that stuff, and melee weapons and unarmed don't. And this is another problem that Eclipse Phase had, is that strictly speaking, it was it, that a gun was better at point-blank range than any other weapon, because... Well, I mean, there's no rule that says you can't put a smart link on a sword. Well, that's true, and that's good, but... The problem fact, I know is, the guy who did that. The basic problem is that it you is that you've got this way to massively improve your chances with this one thing, and that doesn't really show up 
very many other places in the game. I always well, that, remind. That I always remind with people. The history of warfare, doesn't it? I mean, firearms did replace swords. Firearms replaced swords, but um, one of the things. Well, I guess I'll, I'll walk it back because one of the things I really like about Delta Green is that uh, it's not explicitly stated. I mean, it's sort of explicitly stated that if you are close enough to interfere with the barrel of someone's weapon, you can use your fight back roll to avoid being shot. Oh, which, like in the equilibrium scene. I was going to say like in Hitman's Bodyguard, but those are both movies that are like fun but really stupid, which have a lot of gunplay in them, where people try to shoot each other at extreme close ranges but are interfered with by the other guy grabbing the barrel of the gun. I'm going to put a link in the description to the equilibrium fight scene. It's it's so stupid but so cool. I think that works because I remember, I think it's in Trail of Cthulhu, Ken Height has an anecdote about three guys all sitting in the same car, all of them shooting and emptying their magazines at each other and nobody hits anybody else. I think that story was also in um, Pulp Fiction, but yeah, it's not it's not a surprise at all because uh, just most most fired shots in a fight miss. And if I remember correctly, a lot there's a lot of um, law enforcement types who uh, you want if you if you're like really 100 percent you know true like tactical 100 percent serious about defensive pistol shooting, you combine it with a martial art because part of it is. You need to be able to get the gun on the other guy while stopping him from getting the gun on you, and most of the time you're going to be doing that at a range of arm's reach. Anyway, get, getting back to Delta Green, um, there are certain ways to stack modifiers in the game. So first aid, you always want to be carrying a first aid kit because that'll give you a plus 20 there. Um, I think there might be things in the game that give plus 20s in other circumstances. I don't remember if you can get it from like toolkits or something. I don't know about toolkits. I know camping equipment sort of follows the same thing, where basic stuff will do it for one survival test, and then more extensive kit will do it for three subsequent tests. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where it's only on the... I think it's on the gear table in the back. should be. Now that you mention it, I do vaguely recall reading about that. Uh, I think that extends to a couple of other skills, too. Like, like I, I recall something about climbing gear. I think climbing gear is in the same place as toolkits, where based on, like, for instance, the first aid kit and the camping gear, that would make sense if it gave you just a bonus to something, but it's not explicitly spelled out like it is for the other stuff. Yes, I found it. Okay, yeah. Uh, first aid kit. Individual first aid kit gives 20% to a single first aid roll. Uh, further down the page, a first responder medical kit is significantly more extensive and gives 20% to four first aid rolls. And then basic camping gear gives 20% survival for three days, and the extended camping gear gives 20% to survival for 14 days. So there you go. That's cool. I'd forgotten all about that. Nice. So that's good. So it's not even like a single test. It's just a straight period of time. Yeah. So I wonder if there is a space, is a game design space to have similar effects like that for other skills. What that essentially is, is that I need a bonus to my skill. I'm going to go spend some money to an acquisition, you know, calling some favors to make this skill more easy for me to pull off. I like that. That's maybe that's an interesting game design space. What do you guys think? It is an interesting space. I think it runs into the question of where more of a stickler GM might say, you have the thing, therefore you're able to make the roll at all. You don't get a bonus on the roll. I could see that, yeah. Like, it's not impossible. I would probably let people take, for instance, a plus 20 on a mechanics test if they had the right toolkit with them, just because that precedence is already set in the book. It's just something... It's one of those things that you might feel out one way and your players or your GM might feel out another way. What about, um, what do you guys feel about adjusting the circumstances in which you attend a test for a bonus? What kind of things have you seen in play? What kind of things might you ask for 
uh, on the player side as a hand, or what might you allow? Uh, one one canonical example is that you can get bonuses to medicine and stuff by going to a hospital instead of being in the the wild. So you can extend that to shit like you want to be in a mechanic shop to do work on a car instead of in the middle of the road, or you want to be in a lab to do um, PCR on a genetic sample. That brings me. That brings up another point, though, because I'm wondering now if there's specific text for surgery, for example. Like, if you're in a fully stocked surgical operating theater, is that a situation where you don't even have to make the roll because those are controlled circumstances, or is it something where you can't even attempt the roll because it's just too difficult outside those circumstances? I'm inclined to be merciful because if someone brings surgery to the table. And it's in a situation where it would actually be useful. I'm not going to fucking tell him, oh, no, you can't do that because of this specific circumstance. Because something that really irritates me... In this one case, you can't do it, yeah. Right, because something that really irritates me is when games have really obscure skills and then attach like a substantial negative modifier to the one time they're actually useful. Like Delta Green, when it says you get a minus 20 for surgery to remove the the, uh, the like alien fetus from your body in friggin' Lover in the Ice. The one time surgery is useful in the game and you're punished for having it. Fuck that. Well, I think that's a related topic where the text of the agent's handbook really discourages you from using modifiers to the extent that it's just the 2040, you can't do it at all, as opposed to more granular. But then in a lot of written materials, they do use minus 20s and minus 40s fairly often. Yeah, a lot of percentile games, I have that problem. Like, uh, I'm sorry, did you say Warhammer? Because I know Warhammer does. Warhammer is especially guilty of that. Well, we, we started this discussion with Warhammer. Right. So war, one of the problems with all the Warhammer published adventures is that they're all like old Call of Cthulhu adventures where they're all gated by skill checks. And the skill checks are all like neg 20, neg 40. And we're talking about dudes that might have 20 or 40 in a skill to start with. Yeah, that's that's not for This is so, the skill check. OK, well, one one thing that I goodbye. do is um, when I write and this is this is maybe something bad that I do. But when I write scenarios, I when I write the text for them, I don't typically write a number that you have to have and i also don't write it to um i I don't write whether you have to roll it or just have a number and i don't write a number so i just say like agents with this skill might know the answer because i really don't like it just feels super arbitrary to say like someone with 50 would know it but someone with 40 wouldn't because i know the game tries to provide guidelines but you know like if you have 40 then you you know have a high school degree and if you have 50 then you have a college degree and if you have 60 you have like a phd and then you get you know other other ratings and eclipse phase and all the other games do the same thing where they have tried to they try to quantify it but i still have trouble saying like well fucking would a guy with phd in alertness notice this versus a guy with just a fucking masters a phd in alertness a phd in alertness with a minor in human i feel like that sort of character is gonna is going to have double majored in heavy weapons yeah <laughs> yes um well that's kind of an interesting thing that you brought up there is a look uh I hesitate to call it a lookup table, but honestly, it is in the agent's guide that says, uh, you know, here for this this rating in a skill represents this amount of like experience and training. Um, do you find that? Do you guys find that useful? Do you find that kind of no. not well calibrated to how the game actually no, works? No, it's not. It's not well calibrated how the game actually works at all. And Eclipse Phase had the same problem. I think all games have this problem where ga- the game wants you to believe that forty percent or fifty percent is. Um, is fine and it is fine if you have if you have a, a 
a handler who understands well how the percentile world game world works, or you have a handler who has entertaining ways to keep things moving, even if you repeatedly fail. But one thing that um, people like to accuse me of min-maxing and power gaming and so on, and I like to flip the script and say, if I'm going to role play a character who is good at certain things, I want them to be good at those things. If I want to be a coal miner, I want to have at least 60% in mine coal so that if the handler makes me roll mine coal over and over again, I can mine some fucking coal. I can get the anthracite, get bituminous coal, the thinking man's coal, get all that stuff taken the, care of. Is that the stuff that burns white? Um, you're thinking of graphite, which wasn't on the ground because it's not there. Oh, right. Sorry. Let's I want to come back. I want to come back to the bituminous coal because I think there's a really interesting point to be made there. I will just say that I think a much better way of calibrating skills is to look at the starting skill values for certain professions. Like if you've got a clue at criminology 50%, that's really hard for everybody unless you have a federal agent in the party who is just automatically going to know that. If you've got something at medicine 60, that's also really hard unless you know you've got a doctor in the party. Yeah, I don't think generally that... um... Stuff should be set super high, but then at the same time, if stuff if stuff is never set super high, then what's the point in the player who's like, yeah, I want to have eighty percent psychotherapy? So I think if you're playing that way, then maybe you you need to send that signal like, hey, don't build a character who has all these skills at eighty percent because I'm not going to make you roll them every time. So I think I think it's almost like a, a um, I would say it's almost like a trust thing, but I've seen it with I've seen it you know. I, I generally don't think it is because I think people people are going to do it even when they're running they're playing the game with someone who they um, trust to treat them fairly. I really do think it's something that has to be made explicit, and I think that's something that Delta Green does generally a good job of is saying please don't make the players roll for every single thing because otherwise you'll never get anywhere. And I think that's the one thing that Gumshoe does better than Delta Green. Well, Gumshoe, it's built right into the system that you hardly yeah. ever roll at all. Well, it's not just that, but. Um, it's that you can just get things by having even one point in the skill. You know, not even that you just get things. Uh, if you have a point in the skill, the GM just gives you things. Like, oh, you've got fucking. You, you want to use your RKL? Actually, that's an interesting thing. You don't say. Um, you know, I'm going to look at these these uh, ruins or this strange writing over here uh, in 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 Gumshoe. What you say is, I'm going to use my archaeology skill to get a clue. That's that's a very different approach to the way it works in other games, isn't it? I think that. Uh, Gumshoe is actually a game that I would really like if it didn't involve so much like microscale point spending and point buying and just too much complexity. I'm super excited for when that guy finds his way out of the warehouse and delivers the king in yellow. I am also super excited for the fall of Delta Green adventure that they're doing. I don't remember what it's called. Oh, the the, the winner of the best uh, RPG setting? Mm-hmm. And not best rules, that's for sure. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Oof. No, I'm really excited for it because um, it'll have a lot of shit that I can steal for the games that I actually like, which is kind of how I feel about gumshoe products in general. There's a lot it's of how you feel sh- about every game in general. I mean, unironic this, but unironically, uh, yes. Like I just, I just told you guys while I was um, in the pre-recording that I'm that I got a lovely pamphlet from the Mothership Squad at uh, Gen Con. I just, I kind of just, just picked up everything they had there, all the Mothership stuff. So the base game. Um, Dead Planet and Pound of Flesh is, is in fact based. Uh, it's pretty good. I don't know. I don't know if I'd call it based, but here's the thing. Um, they gave me this pamphlet with an adventure inside, and I was like, "Yo, this is some good shit." I'm totally running this in Delta Green though, because I just kind of <laughs> like that system better. Mothership is a um, 
a science fiction horror game. It's a bit, uh, it's like basically uh, aliens like or event horizon like, and it has a bit of an OSR type flavor to it with this like random generation of things and uh, stuff like that, and very few rules for stuff. And the probably the best part of the game is character creation because I think it does a really, really good job of blending choice and randomness to create a mixture of a personalized character that has a lot of flavor to it. I think that I would love it if other games could do it as well as Mothership does it. I think that the actual rules have a lot of problems. I think that a lot of the people who are praising the game have not played it and have not experienced how there's a lot of stuff that's really slickly presented but is not quite as usable as it at first appears. And I think the problems start when the dice actually hit the table and you realize that characters, um, if you just run the game totally flat, rules as written, kind of can't do anything. And so you have to then go back to your, what are your principles of running a D100 game? We'll think, does this really require a role? We'll think, is there a way the players could be creative and get around that? And once you start thinking like that, it's better. And that may have been the original intention to create a game where rather than counting on stuff on your character sheet, you use that as a baseline and then say, I'm going to use my imagination to come up with a situation where I couldn't possibly fail. But that only works as long as the guy running the game is is uh, on board. Because one thing that I see over and over again is people are like going to write primers about, you know, oh, here's how to be a player in, in this type of game. Like, here's the OSR primer, you know, use your, use your brain, uh, do all this stuff. But they don't write them for the guy running the game. And that's just as important because the guy running the game needs to have the same level of buy-in to this specific play style. Otherwise, it's you're not going to get anywhere. Well, I'm glad that that guy is listening to our podcast then. I certainly hope that Thanks whatever... Thanks for listening, which, guy. Which guy is it? Uh, you, the listener. Thanks for listening. Right, yeah. So I think that this is important because um, our show is very often too much focused on... Um, stuff for people running games but i think there's a reason for that and that's that if the guy running the game doesn't you know if the guy running the game runs it a certain way for better or worse there's not that much the players can do about it they can suggest things but playing a different way doesn't help if if the boss is doing stuff a, cer- a certain way so that's why i always have this fixation on you know here's what the handler can do because if the handler does something that's kind of the way things are going to be so skills Oh, I can I can go back to the bit about the coal now. The Please do. Yes, the yes, save us, save us. And the botulism coal, whatever it's called. Do it, yeah. Botulism bituminous, coal, yeah. Bituminous coal. That's episode bituminous. title. Botulism yeah. coal. That's the episode <laughs> title. Yeah. All right. Save the segment, Tom. Okay, so here's the thing. In about 20 seconds, Melon said more about coal than I have any comprehension of at all and i think that's the other thing you really get into with a skill system in a game we've been talking a lot about uh the balance and the mechanics of them but i think a big part of why they are so common is just that it's a way of demonstrating what your character knows that the player has no expectation of actually bringing to the table with them like i think you've said melon uh the reason that thieves exist in DD is because no one is going to become a mechanical engineer just to describe how they open an imaginary chest. I am so happy that you remembered that because, yeah, so for what, what, what Tom's referring to here, gang, is that in the very early editions of Delta and Dragons, by which I mean <laughs> OD&D. Delta and Dragons. That, that, that's the game we're talking about here. The grand very, copy of them all. In a super early uh, Gygax game and Aaron Arneson game, uh, I think that's his name, the uh, 
skill system, there was no skill system. So if you wanted to do something like disarm a trap, you described how your dude did it. You know, you said, I'm going to push down on the left spring with a force of this many Newtons and then move this object to the left. And the problem was that very rapidly we discover that most players and most GMs are not mechanical engineers capable of simulating physics objects in their head. So we get the thief and the thief has skills like disarm trap or find hidden door. And that's where skill systems come from. That's really interesting. I yeah, think you for bringing that up, Tom, because I had I had forgotten all about that whole like rant that I did about that. No, we've talked about that before because we've mentioned, at least I've mentioned a couple of times, once or twice on the Discord, just uh, in the subject of skills, like certain skills I would remove and how I kind of like, I guess the ethos of an OSR game is, or a lot of OSR games is people prefer not to roll skills they do prefer to talk it out like that for the feeling of making the world interactive and tactile but it also you do front load then you require a certain level of player knowledge as opposed to character knowledge and in delta green specific terms i'm thinking of you have the law skill specifically because you may not know all the statutes and codes in whatever place in the united states that the mission takes you this week yeah the other one I was thinking of is um, people people like don't necessarily always love social skills in RPG games like persuade RPG games you know ATM machines uh, like persuade or uh, humanity or whatever but I always consider with that those skills are valuable because they save me the handler from having to simulate the mind of every NPC and perfectly gauge every reaction because I don't I'm not always because I, I have a pretty good idea of how my NPCs feel about stuff in general but I don't always know like is that a persuasive argument or not if I know it absolutely is I'll just let it go and if I know that it's absolutely not I'll say I'll you know let them know okay you're in trouble you don't think you're doing a good job here but otherwise the persuade skill is really helpful for me because it says you know is this delivery actually reasonable and then also it really helps in interrogations i found and i wish kevin were here because kevin's one who i know who who has strong feelings about this because one thing that'll always happen in the game when they're trying to get information out of an npc is that all the players just kind of bombard them with questions and there's no there's no like the structure that you would actually use to get facts out of somebody there's just people line kind of line up and then just throw rocks at the, at the dude it makes it impossible to like control what information the victim has because you're going to say like, oh, well, we never said that he was murdered. And like, yes, you did. That was the first thing you said to me because some other someone else said it. So being able to abstract that is also super valuable. Scott Dorward, he also said on an episode of the Good Friends of Jackson Alliance, I think specifically about social challenges or about uh, gameplay mechanics. I can go back and find the exact episode. Anyway, the point is he said that he used to run social encounters and interactions with NPCs purely through roleplay, but he felt that it ended up being fairly unsatisfying because it was hard to tell when the players were actually getting what they wanted. Like, the players might be making a good argument, but then they would say one thing that sort of slipped up, and so the NPC would start to turn against them and they wouldn't get the information they wanted. Whereas if you just make that a persuade role, regardless of bonuses or of failing forward, you just get a straight up, did you get the thing, yes or no? Well, that reminds me of a mechanic that Eclipse Phase actually did fairly well, uh, which was, I don't know if it's in second edition, but first edition had a skill called Protocol. And the way Protocol works is, if you say something completely stupid that totally shoots yourself in the foot, the GM asks for a Protocol role, and on success says, yeah, no, you, you don't actually say that. You stop yourself before you can manage to completely sabotage but your what entire if, case what here. If the, instead, of, instead of the endless fractal growth of the skill tree, we just used intelligence for that. 
Uh, that's a great idea. In fact, I might do that going forward in Delta Green. But uh, to bring it back to Delta Green, uh, here's something that's actually we've we've touched on briefly before on the subject of skills and player knowledge and character knowledge. There, there, there is not a tradecraft skill in Delta Green. There was an old Delta Green, but it's not in the new one. You're right. Did we go into detail? We we just we've only really discussed that in passing, haven't we? I think so. Yeah, I don't think we've ever really deep dived into it. So yeah, so there isn't there is not a, a dedicated tradecraft skill in Delta Green, um, which is an interesting division in uh, player versus character knowledge. Um, for the benefit of any listeners who may have missed it the last time we talked about it, what do you guys what do you guys think about where the line is drawn there? Uh, I'm gonna reiterate what I said last time, which is that. If you expect your players to, uh, so Del- Delta Green is a game like, and I had this problem with Eclipse Phase Two, where it really lends itself to a lot of bullshit gotchas, where it's like you should have known based on the expectation of the setting that you know going to that cafe meant that you were subject to surveillance, which meant that this other cascade of things was happening in the background while nothing was ever presented to you. And the problem with that is that it makes the game just really fucking unfun because it means that rather than playing the game. Everyone is spending 90% of their time speculating about what might be happening and being afraid to do anything. So giving the players an out, giving them some way to say, I, my character has this expertise and can just go and do stuff is so, so important to me as a, as a handler because it means that I have an excuse to let people off the hook there. And it does cause problems when I want to run a scenario that's really deep into the spy fiction and about like you know, following people around and tracking them and surveilling them and so on. But I generally do not run scenarios where the NPCs do that to the players because I don't find it interesting because of the problems I just described. So I would rather just write that off and run a game where the players have some excuse to not constantly have to waste their time on shit that neither they nor the GM finds interesting. Tom, agree, disagree on the tradecraft not being a skill thing? Um, My feeling is that... I think what we mentioned earlier, the failure, the not the failure, but the lack of a tradecraft skill does kind of push you to in to gather that knowledge yourself as a person and bring that to the table, which I guess arguably isn't a big ask when it is an espionage flavored game. But I do think that, like Melon says, without it, it kind of trips up players who aren't necessarily thinking of that and not giving an explicit avenue for them to act on it i think that one thing the game does that's a saving grace is that rather than having a tradecraft skill the agent's handbook which is a player facing document so players are allowed to know anything that's inside of it has a table of opposed tradecraft roles that show how your existing skills in the game such as criminology bureaucracy human computer science could be used for that function yeah i think that's actually really good and i think that's I think that's a fine way to do it is that laying out in the book the ways you can handle tradecraft rather than having a dedicated skill for it. I think my my one thing that could be done to improve it is if they took that appendix and actually moved it further earlier in the book, like even to the point where it's part of the character creation. Yes, because character. instructing people on how skills they have can be used is a crucial part of them making characters. Because and it, go ahead. And to its credit, the book does include the whole skill list in the character creation chapter. So right after it tells you how to, like, what professions you can pick and what bonus skills you can get, it then explains to you what every skill does. 
but I think that additional context of the tradecraft section would fit really well there and kind of get you into the right mindset while making a character. This is a thing that came up a bit at Gen Con because we, uh, we we built our Gen Con pre-gen stack out of uh, just the squad that we the squad that we took to Gen Con. We we all submitted pre-gens to the to the pile, and one thing that. I think both we and the players noticed very quickly is that the characters that we brought to the table were considerably more, I guess you would say, uh, powerful or maybe even min-maxed than any of the pre-gens offered in the official Arctria materials. And yeah, that was I would just say they were better. I, I would also say that. And I'm not just saying that because I made two of them. Uh, I think that part of that was that we had that knowledge of here's what this skill is actually used for. So, you know, we know how much of it you actually might need. We know whether you actually need to roll it all the time. But also, one of the things that I tried to do with mine, I think everyone else did a good job with this too, is to actually write on the in the notes section of the sheet, here's how you can use this skill. And the other thing about a tradecraft skill is that just having that on your sheet and looking at it and saying, oh, I have tradecraft, I can be a badass secret agent. That makes you feel like a badass secret agent. Which I think is why it, I don't know if it got added to Gumshoe with Knight's Black Agents, but it's on your sheet in Knight Black Agents, and it's a skill everybody starts with a point in, so that already tells you how capable your character is. But that's also sort of a tone thing, in that Knight's Black Agents wants you to feel that way. It wants you to feel like a John Wick action movie hero kind of character who the only reason these bad guys are even able to stand up to you is because they have vampires backing them up. Whereas that sort of empowerment fantasy is really not being pursued by Delta Green. Delta Green wants you to feel hunted and vulnerable a lot. So, so Tom, you've given me an interesting idea, um, actually. I wonder if perhaps that is maybe a hidden assumption in Delta Green. After all, every Del- like Delta Green agents are not average people. You know, there's a certain selection filter that they have to pass through to get right into the program. So I wonder if maybe one of the assumptions of the setting, um, albeit poorly stated is that everybody who is in delta green has some kind of working knowledge of how to be a spy i think that's fair like i think there's already a built-in assumption that yeah a delta green agent is already like ahead above the average person i think we've pointed out before that 10 is the average of all the stats in delta green but under the character creation rules the average dg agent has 12 in everything yeah, and if you look similarly, if you look in the handler's book at what skill levels people should have, like an elite badass has like a fifty in one skill. Whereas Delta Green characters, if you're the way that most people build them, I think have at least fifty or sixty in like two or three skills, and then a yeah. shit ton of other ones. It's like how in Eclipse phase they say to be an ultimate, you must have like fifty in five skills. Like motherfucker, I did that with my friggin' like with my starting points without even spending my free points. And then we're expected to believe that Firewall is having a hard time infiltrating the Ultimates. No, like, they're just dudes with... They're just fucking ex-humans without gimmicks. I mean, uh, you, know what, you, know, you know how normally I just say X is just spicy Y? Ultimates are just bland ex-humans. This is something we keep coming back to, uh, generally. Um, skills and how to use them and play and how you're doing them wrong. Um, this is probably something we're going to come back to again. Uh, I know we, we've we've talked about uh, we did a, a deep dive on computer science once. I think we've done like one or two other skills, but uh, yeah, no, I I, uh, I can see us definitely revisiting this in the future. Um, talking about some other specific skills, I'd love to do one on tradecraft, even though that's not a skill. I'd love to do one on interrogation, that's not a skill. Uh, so I guess keep an eye out for those in the future. 
we, we talk a lot on the show about law enforcement in the United States because two of us are or were law enforcement officers and the rest of us play a game that revolves heavily around that idea. We don't often talk about how law enforcement and criminal justice is like outside the U.S. So we wanted to look at it, or I was, I was going to look at it through two different lenses. One is if you were going to run Delta Green, which we've talked a little bit about in another country, you know, what you might want to know about their law enforcement system if you're going to run Delta Green as like part of their law enforcement apparatus. But also if you were going to take your U.S. Delta Green agent and move them internationally for some reason, what that might look like or how you could maybe maybe get that. So I'm, I was going to start just because it's near and dear to my heart with like, if, if you're a U.S. Delta Green agent, um, you know, how do you... And you want to operate in another country, uh, either, you know, I guess we could use something like um, maybe Britain with Pisces or Canada with MAPIC or even just, you know, a, another country that has a, a mythos, anti-mythos organization, um, rather than being like a fully inserted, like, you know, what we're seeing that doesn't care. But say you want to work within their system and you're just like a technical advisor, or you're just, you know, you want to bring your character along or whatever. There are a lot of ways you can kind of do that. Is that like uh, bilateral agreements? Yeah. So many... The U.S. and many of its ally countries basically have these agreements, these treaties that basically say, you know, all of your law enforcement assets under certain conditions, right? All of your law enforcement assets can be used by us and we can use all of yours. And here are the assets that count. And a good example is the U.S. and the Bahamas. The Bahamas don't really have uh, this, the level of like Navy and Coast Guard that we do. They just have a Royal Bahamian Defense Force. But there's a lot of drugs and migrants and other illegal activities that come through the Bahamas. So basically, the Bahamas can put one of their officers on a U.S. military or Coast Guard ship or a Navy ship and then use that as like a means to enact, to enforce Bahamian laws under a U.S. flag. And we can also go into their territorial waters and their jurisdiction and enforce our laws with either with them or if they're not around. Kevin, I know, I know that you're saying like Bahamanian or Bahamanian or whatever, but it keeps it sounds like you keep saying Bohemian. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's Bahamian. So okay. you're enforcing the laws on the fantasy. Baha- bah- Bahamian or Bahamanian? I believe it's Bahamian. Okay, okay. I, be- I take your word for it. But um, now that we know what a bilateral agreement with our friends in that one region of Germany is. No, that's what? That's Barovia. <laughs> no, you're thinking of Bavaria. Yeah. Yep, no, Barovia is... Barovia is uh, Strahd, right? I don't think anybody has a bilateral agreement with Barovia. Mm. I mean, you don't know that. Strahd could be super into the whole, like... You can't, because Strahd is the land. That What's that mean? It means that Strahd is the land. I don't know what that means. I haven't played the game. I mean, w- w- when has that ever stopped you from commenting on published materials, though? I think that shots fired. Kevin should not explain this because I want to argue with Will about. No, it's fine. Go ahead. <laughs> so I do want to kind of say, like, if you're, I, what I don't want to do is give agents or players carte blanche to just take their one special snowflake U.S. agent and use them in every single game and just shoehorn them into. Oh, it's an epic game. Well, he's here on the bilateral agreement. All right. I mean, that's kind of cheesy. You know, if the game is set in another country and it's designed that way, you know, don't fight the system. But sometimes it could be a fun way to bring an agent into it. And it's pretty easy to basically just say, well, there's an agreement in place so the FBI or whoever your guy works for can work here. There you go. Bob's your uncle. You're all set to go. Like assuming that like you're playing it where the program's pulling strings instead of being like, hey, ghost, you know, sneaky, sneaky style in and don't get caught. Yeah. Even, but I mean, even so, have you guys seen the movie Clear and Present Danger? Yeah, I've read the book also. True. So in the in the movie is a very very brief spoiler. Um, 
a guy decently high up in the U.S. government basically wants to mess with relations. So he basically just makes up a reason to insert like a U.S. special forces team kind of off the books into the you know Colombia, and then they start blowing stuff up. But that's like a lot more realistic than you think it is. It's not that that outlandish. I mean, in the 80s, the Coast Guard blew up 14 drug labs in Colombia before somebody finally was like, why is the Coast Guard running around blowing up drug labs? So it's very easy if you're like the big guy, which is with the U.S. to so basically you just enforce your systems on another country, which could be a fun like system to game a little bit. I remember in Clear and Present Danger, the book they had like uh, fighter jets shooting down like prop planes that had drugs on board. Like they had yeah. basically they they have spotters at the drug lords' airfields and they tell you know what the plane was and what the markings were so the fighter planes could shoot them down. Like we've talked a lot about how sometimes it can be fun to have like your federal agent federal agent agents be at odds with local law enforcement that can be a can be a fun dynamic when it's not overdone but think about if your federal agents are at odds with the entire local government because you've kind of you know nicely told them that you're uh you're not going to leave you're in fact going to enforce the u.s laws here and they don't really get a choice in it because they signed an agreement you know a decade ago if you're in Colombia, the police are just as likely to shoot you there as the cartel are so (laughs) yeah exactly um, the other thing to think about with other countries, so in the U.S., there's a pretty distinct break between the military and law enforcement. Um, Are you which, sure? I mean, th- there's a running gag where <laughs> play. just a cop or, or a social forces agent. Joke is they're always cops. But uh, legally, there is a break, just a distinct break between sure. uh, military and law, and law enforcement. The Coast Guard is, again, the obvious um, uh Red-headed stepchild. Yeah, that's a Space Force next. Exception to the rule. They can enforce law enforcement things. But in a lot of other countries, there's a much more of a mixed military law enforcement vibe. So there's a lot of times when the U.S. military will send military advisors to another country to, to do things, and they could easily find themselves in a law enforcement um, you know, advisor role. There's a lot less of a distinction there. And then generally those like generally, I mean, at least Mexico is an example, but like their federal police and federal like apparatus is a lot more legitimate and their like local police is usually pretty, you know, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but generally a little more corrupt, a little more um, with, you know, taking bribes and you know, not necessarily the good guys. A little more, a little more laid back. Yeah. So like what, uh, what does all this mean in terms of Delta Green, the role playing game though? Like, cause how, how would you do this? I find sometimes a good Delta Green game has two groups of agents, whether it's the old hands and the newbies, whether it's two cells, whether it's, you know, just two distinct groups because then there's a little bit of not necessarily artificial tension, but there can be some interaction between the two rather than you've all been on eight missions together and you know everyone in and out and you know, go fight the monster. So doing this, you know, sometimes a Delta Green game can be hard if, you, if you're doing a game set in the Bahamas to have to make up 10 different Bahama, 10 different Bahamian pregens so make three bahamian pregens and have the rest of the players be u.s agents and they have to kind of work together to solve the problem that could be a fun way to write a scenario or it could turn maybe a more mundane scenario into something interesting because you've added this extra baggage the other thing i saw i was was talking on the night of the upper discord to somebody about how a lot of times agents try to like get a warrant like do things legally but in reality they would just like blast the cultists and walk away because no one's going to investigate this random murder and no one's going to try to drop peace sprinkle some cocaine on them yeah exactly so but if you force them to work within this like international agreement there is a little bit of delta green may say like hey you have to make this you can't just like blow up the cartel leader and walk away you have to it has to be somewhat legitimate or legitimate enough which could be a fun it has to look plausible 
Yeah, exactly. That can be a fun crutch to saddle agents with, especially if they're too trigger happy or, you know, problematic. It's funny because, like, trigger happy is the sort of, like, default assumption for, like, law enforcement in the U.S. when you're playing Delta Green. You know, everyone yeah. pictures, like, uh, Agent Gagnon, Melon's character, which, uh, Max, tell the, tell the Rainbow Six joke. Uh, Gagnon's power is that uh, she's an attacking operator. She carries a drop piece. She's from the ATF. And her power is that when she kills the hostage, she puts the drop piece on it, so her team still wins. <laughs> that's good. So that's like, you know, that's the way that people tend to think about law enforcement in the U.S. when you play games. Or, uh, But what about in other countries? Would a uh, Bahamas police officer be the same way? What about like an MFIC officer or whatever various anti-mythos agency you're playing with out of Japan? Would like the the culture that it surrounds or, you know, the perception of the culture change how you'd want to play the game, maybe? So I have I had one other quick comment I wanted to make. So I don't think we're going to get back to it. And I think it's a funny little nuance of international law. So a bunch of countries have signed or recognized this convention on the law of the sea, UNCLOS. It basically means like everybody who signed it or, under, or who agrees with it has certain border, agrees on a certain border. And like if you're a French vessel and somebody stops you in U.S. waters, you're going to be like, there are some laws that will apply and you won't be just like murdered and pirated and whatnot. You know, you'd be given back to France, that kind of thing. So that can cause a lot of problems if you're, if you're in someone else's waters, like you're in Colombian waters and you're trying to, to stop a drug smuggler. So what you, what, the, what you try to do is find a reason to assume that vessel is called stateless. Because if it doesn't belong to a state, then it doesn't have any rights, and you you, you basically just take it, uh, like as a as a as a pirate would. So you basically try to find a reason to assume a vessel is stateless, and then you just well, it doesn't have a flag, you know, it doesn't stand under anyone's country's laws, so it's no one. It's a pirate. We'll just you know arrest everyone on board and sink all the cargo. Which is such a it only works because the person doing it is a bigger pirate, has a bigger stick to swing than the guy getting pirated. What's it called when the cops just take all the money in your wallet? Uh, civil asset for uh, excuse me, bri- civil bri- asset bri- bribery. <laughs> yeah, so it's basically bribery. civil forfeiture for the high seas. Yeah, right. Exactly. But you were you mentioned um, Japan briefly in your little statement there, Jake. And I know Japan is a country that has a much different. They have a pretty Western legal system, but there are some definite like large scale differences. Right. I think like I had to look this up because someone had asked a question about it on the server one time, and uh, I found and I think Max found something similar about how police prosecutors in Japan are also the ones that investigate. So like they're lawyers, but they're also criminal investigators. And that's, I could appreciate that. Honestly, that's like a uh, cut up a middleman. Phoenix, Wright Is a documentary. What's Phoenix, Wright? That's it's a is meme it? game where it's, you, it's a you're lawyer. supposed to say, I assure you it's quite based. Well, I didn't, but I, I could appreciate that, you know, cutting out the middleman um, where, the, the prosecutor is the same as the person who makes the arrest. Um, but I also found that they only tend to take on cases that they're guaranteed to win. And I was thinking about that, like you described earlier, uh, Kevin, that in a game of Delta Green, an agent can get a warrant, but like nine times out of ten, they're not going to. Um, so like, how does that change how you'd model like an anti-mythos agency in another country? And I know we've done a segment in the past on uh, other countries' anti-mythos things, but it's just something that I, I thought about. Like, yeah, how how does uh, the different legal system or like the different culture of like a law enforcement agency in another country affect how their anti-mythos 
organization would be. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think would change for a Japanese agencies because they have a maybe a looser. And again, I'm going to paint with a broad brush here. So if you're listening in your Japanese law enforcement, please don't take personal offense. But they have a like they, they t- tend to only take cases they're going to win, and they tend to kind of coerce ish confessions out of people. So where like a, a Delta Green agent in the U.S. might realize that if they put the cultists in lockup, any lawyers up, the mythos is going to spread, like they're going to have a problem. But in Japan, if you just put him in lockup, he doesn't necessarily get a lawyer. Maybe you can get a confession out of him that you can kind of control, and then maybe you can tie a legitimate bow around the case. That would be a yeah. lot harder to get away with in the U.S. It's some crazy... Uh, I've heard some crazy stories. Like, you know, the Carlos Gones, who is the guy who's the CEO of Nissan and the French company Renault at the same time. And um, he wanted the two companies... This is a recent case. You guys might have heard about it. Um, it's really interesting. Yeah, he... Uh, they... He wanted the two companies to merge, and he was, you know, a pretty pretty good CEO. Wait, that's an oxymoron there. But um, I mean, someone cut his head off with a guillotine. No, no. Um, for one way or another, they were trying. They they held him in uh, lockup for like twenty days without informing him like what his charges were, and that's totally like like that's just a thing they can do in Japan. They can hold you like indefinitely without telling you what your crime is. They denied access to lawyers for him and stuff. And he was in there for uh, around about a year, I think, um, just in police custody until finally he made like arrangements to smuggle himself out of the country. And yeah, he was you know, house like, arrest for a while, yeah. Oh yeah, house arrest. But uh, those big, uh, the big metal cases that you put like huge band concert speakers in, he locked himself in one of those and smuggled himself out of the country because that thing was too big to go through an X-ray machine at the airport. And let's be clear, it's entirely possible that whoever this guy is is actually like a total piece of shit and 100% guilty. But, I mean, that's also what they say about terrorists in this country when they do indefinite detention. Yeah, he deserves a lawyer. He deserves a trial. He deserves a day in court. And granted, in the U.S., you can also be put in jail for 20 days and no one talk to you. But, like, it's not supposed to work that way where it's more right. that's how Japan it's like codified there, essentially. That guy also did have a lawyer. I think I saw in a story because the lawyer was really pissed off saying, why would you flee the country and make yourself look guilty like this? Well, he's like a hero. He, he flew to Lebanon, fled to Lebanon, where he's like a national hero. So I think he was basically like, fuck Japan. They don't have an extradition treaty. I'll take my chances where the people actually like me. Although he is in a little trouble because he Lebanon is still technically at war with Israel, and he has an Israeli stamp in his passport from a business trip. So someone's trying to get him like in trouble for violating some obscure war law. Yeah, I've heard that like when you go to Israel, if you've been to Saudi Arabia, you should get like another passport that's blank and doesn't have like a Saudi Arabia stamp in it or something like that. Otherwise, they'll try and hold you up at the airport. You gotta have two passports. Perfectly normal world we live in. One of the interesting things about Japan is they don't necessarily, they don't have a standing army. They're not allowed to anymore. So they have a defense force, right. which is, I mean, an army in, in in everything but name. But I don't think they have as much, like the US, again, back to the US for a second, they can send soldiers and people and advisors all over the world. I don't know if the Jap- Japanese self-defense force can. So that might limit your ability to bring like a Japanese agent into a US Delta Green game. It'd have to be like law enforcement. It couldn't be military. Like I think like a Japanese, like one of those inspectors or whatever they call them over there could plausibly operate in the United States if there was some sort of an agreement like that. But I'm I'm just kind of more interested in like if you were to work with an anti-mythos group, what would its culture be? Because, you know, you got shoot the wizard, burn the books is like how the outlaws go. 
capture it, weaponize it, turn it over to March Tech, make it look like nothing happened. It's kind of like how the program works. We're just trying to think about that and how that works. How do you think a Delta Green agent from like the U.S. would fare in a Japanese Delta Green game? It'd stand out like a sore thumb for one, unless unless he was like Japanese American himself. I know. Well, uh, even even then, even then, there'd be a lot of places he just wouldn't be able to go in. Yeah, it's like one of the most racist countries on earth, but people give it a pass because it's like a more genteel form of racism. I've heard in some ways it's actually worse if you're if you're half Japanese. Right, because there's like this weird kind of celebrity status attached to being Caucasian, even when, you know, you're you're considered a foreigner. Game game ability wise that translates to me that it'd be hard for like a Delta Green agent to operate in Japan unhindered. Not like, impossible, but very right. difficult. Be very hard because you're like so highly visible all the time. Like you, like it would come up in conversation as a uh, it would be a point you have to deal with in every interaction. Right. Yeah. yeah, or you could just do you know if you want to put like a mechanic on it, it, it imposed like a twenty percent or forty percent penalty on your checks to go unnoticed or to persuade or you know that sort of thing. Just like because disguise or so stealth, maybe. God, yeah, it'd be really hard to disguise. All you white people look the same. Yeah. What about um, Canada? Anything there in terms of uh, you know cross-border stuff or differences? Or I know there is a standing. Um, I don't know if it's policy or if it's actual law or if it's just professional courtesy, but FBI agents who cross the border are generally given a little bit of leeway by Canadian law enforcement. Like they're they're kind of given a pass on you know carrying their duty weapon, for instance, through through a border crossing. Um, and there, you mentioned there are bilateral agreements in place. I think the Canadian side of that is a lot more permissive than than vice versa. I think an FBI agent following an investigation into Canada would encounter would would have a lot easier time than a Mountie following an investigation into the United States, for instance. Oh yeah, come on in, uh, have a look around, uh, do whatever you need to do. Yeah, there certainly <laughs> would be resistance and resentment, especially from from the mount from the Mounties. But make yourself at home. That's like the worst Canadian accent I've ever heard. I don't You're even asking know. asking a guy from like Alabama to do a Canadian accent. I'm sorry. Here's a little bit of trivia. Um, while we're talking about legal things, um, do you guys know that Canada doesn't have a Fifth Amendment? So how do you protect yourself? Well, um, you neatly sidestepped the joke where I said um, there doesn't have amendments of any kind because there is no legal document called the Bill of Rights. You don't have any rights in Canada? We have a Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So wait, is there a fifth right and freedom that is against self-incrimination? There is a Section 5, but it doesn't have to do with self-incrimination. Section 5 has to do with democratic rights and voting. My understanding is the Fifth Amendment serves to both protect you from self-incrimination and from testifying against yourself and also from like saying something uh, when you're arrested. Like, it's the right to remain silent, right? That sort of lumps everything into that. Is that correct? I'm not telling you. Fuck you, pig. There yeah, you I, go. Was, I was going to do a joke where I didn't talk, but then I realized that someone else would just talk because I wasn't. There. Okay, yeah. so yeah, I did the same, the same thought process occurred to me. Most of those protections exist in the charter, but they are spread out between different sections and they interact in a very strange way. So, for instance, section 10 says you have the right to not answer questions when you're arrested or detained. Section 11 says that you can't be called to testify at your own trial. And then section 13. 13 says if you're called to testify at someone else's trial, you can't refuse. But anything you say in that proceeding can't be used as evidence against you in your own trial. So you can be compelled to give self-incriminating testimony in someone else's trial, but that testimony... If you and I commit a robbery... Yeah. And your trial, I'm called for a witness. I have to snitch on you? Uh, Yes. So there we were. 
robbing a bank. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And then I can say exactly the same thing. Work yesterday. It just shoots the prisoners dilemma like right out of the sky in Canada. Like I said, they interact in a very strange way. Uh, the 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 basis in legal precedent for this principle when when it was tested was uh, there was a guy. I think it was a guy who was involved in a motorcycle accident, and in the criminal case, he was he he said he didn't remember or something like he had like some kind of brain damage uh, and then as a result of that he was he was found not criminally responsible and then in a, the civil case he recalled events from the crash which he used in his own defense and then opposing counsel was like hey you now you sit in the other trial and then it got pushed up to the supreme court the supreme courts were like yeah well that's not what he said but you're not allowed to use his testimony in that other trial as evidence against him wow it's like so what oj simpson did kind of yeah yeah so you, you need to like commit a big crime and then all get trials at the exact same time? Yes. And don't let them group you together. Yeah. Well, that's good for any kind of uh, law enforcement. So yes, yeah, so there's my little bit of Canadian legal trivia. So I think the, the one thing I've kind of discovered during recording this, I think, is that I like the idea of forcing Delta Green agents to work through a legal framework because it forces them to be less gung-ho and crazy and like actually be accountable. And perhaps dealing, perhaps inserting other countries into them or them to other countries is the way to do it. Yeah, I think that's a neat dynamic to kind of have, you know, the the police from the foreign nation you're operating in kind of watching over your shoulder. Just, you know. Uh, Max, them. isn't that why you're running Pisces games now? Get, get them to get them to look away while you dig the tome out from under the rubble. I heard my name. I said, yes, uh, isn't like the the different framing or like the different legal the culture of the mythos thing. That's one of the reasons why you're running Pisces now, right? You're running Pisces games. I thought it was, but actually I've found that people are now a lot better in my Delta Green games about just not shooting everything in sight. So that actually does not make it necessary to run Pisces games. In setting up Pisces games, have you noticed any differences in how those are set up and run as opposed to running the same kind of game in the U.S.? Uh only because I made a very conscious decision to run a certain type of game with that organization. You could just as easily duplicate the type of game that I run in the United States by just having the by just having giving Delta Green an office. So like make it like where they were back in the forties? where Delta Green was like legitimate and above the board, like the uh, fall of Delta Green? The way that I did it was that I decided that rather than focus on the shans and stuff, which were supposed to be gone by now, but if you want them still around, it's fine. It works the same way. I decided that after the Civil War, they basically reverted back to feudalism, which makes sense because they're in the UK. But in a non-meme sense, what it means is that uh, because the Civil War destroyed any sense of trust or like loyalty within the organization, it's basically coalesced now into a bunch of warring fiefdoms where people hoard information and try to make themselves indispensable. And what happens is that if someone thinks that you are disloyal or that you just piss them off, they will try and create evidence that you are possessed by a bug and you need to have a hole drilled in your skull to get it out. So that is used as a, a the, the original anti-sham procedure is now used as a, a punishment or a way to remove problematic uh, rivals in the, within the organization. So it's your slap on the wrist. You're going to drill a drill a player character's hole a hole in their head. Yeah. So every adventures I've written, I've writ I've put a little uh, scorecard in the back, and every time you do something that either it's there's, there's two ways you can get the scorecard filled in you can do bad things like you know expose secrets to the public 
get other agents killed or if someone else does them and you get blamed for it one of your rivals is trying to embarrass you you can also get points in and if you get a certain number of points you get reprimanded control says hey fix your shit and if you get twice that number of points you get a whole drilled in your skull wow that sucks yeah Worst consequence. Yeah, yeah, it's settled. Yeah, I was gonna say that the the worst consequence I ever figured for for running an epic game was having to explain yourself to to the prime minister. It kind of seems like small potatoes compared to MF or um, Pisces inspectors can have a little little trepanation as a punishment. As a punishment, yes. Police in the United Kingdom uh, are not. They don't typically carry firearms as much as in the U.S., but there's certain types of cop where it's not people won't won't look twice. Like if you're a Ministry of Defense police, you can carry like an MP7 in public, and people will like look at you, but it's not they won't like assume there's a war on. Or uh, the one that I, the other one that I learned about when I was writing my uh, Belfast like paramilitary drug trade scenario is that police service in Northern Ireland is allowed to carry both on the job and off duty. Which is like if you didn't if 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 you just just from going off the rest of the United Kingdom seems absolutely crazy, but in Northern Ireland makes a lot of sense because those are the that's the one group that both the uh, the Protestant and the um, uh, Republican paramilitaries want to zap is the police. So somebody at work asked me what uh, she's very young and uh, she was like, "We know what do you listen to?" And I was like, honestly, I've been bumping a mix of Grimes and old IRA fight songs. And he's like, no idea how to respond to that. That's a hell of a combination right there. Oh, look. I mean, because Come Out You Black and Tan is trending in Europe because of a debacle over there. So, like, that's been, and it's a good song. So, that's been on my thing. And then, like, Grimes did the Cyberpunk 2077 song, and that was good. So, that's kind of what I'm bouncing between right now, right? I'm not judging. I'm just saying it's an interesting contrast. Anybody got anything else about law enforcement, criminal justice, other places in the world? So people keep talking about uh, doing like Japanese Delta Green. Like there's four Japanese Delta Green fan organizations now. And I guess when I look at all those, I think what's missing is like some actual content, like some adventures. Like I think that there's lots of probably i mean here's the thing it's one of those things where everyone keeps saying how cool it would be but despite writing a lot of organizations i haven't seen a single like scenario so there's four uh japanese organizations a new one crops up every time you look away when we need that that's ridiculous we should like unify all of them yeah we should write a fifth one that uh covers all the bases and appeases everybody Nice. It's that XKCD bit. Yep. Yes, we did that. But um, I'm, I'm going to say I've yet to read one that doesn't just feel like a pastiche of Delta Green. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think if you're going to write, I mean, we talked about this. This is rehashing the old days. But if you're going to write Delta Green in another country, you, you, th- you should either just be Delta Green, but in another country, there's a very clear, you know, palette swap because you just want to run games there, and that's fine. Or it should be something very unique. It brings something interesting to the table. <laughs> <laughs>